as brothers and sisters in Christ, please stand and join us as we sing our praises to God together.
Upon 
Heavenly Father, we come today in gratitude and thanksgiving because Christ has overcome. And we are here because of what you have done in this world and for us through Christ. So we pray that you'd be glorified in our worship today. We pray that you would speak into our hearts and continue to transform us into the image of your Son. And we ask this in his name. Amen. It's so great to see all of you here this morning, especially those of you who may be here for homecoming weekend. It's great to have you as part of the worship today. And I want to encourage you to take a moment, share a word of greeting with others here in worship this morning. Well, the kids are walking up to uh, talk to us a little bit about uh, a project they're working on. did want to uh, mention we have uh, another new baby born uh, to our church family. Kayla Barrett Stevens was born to Jason and Kendra yesterday morning. And we give thanks again to God for the gift of new life. And uh, we are always excited to, uh, to see what's happening with our children. And uh, this is the group from Junior Church. And they're going to be sharing with us about a project that... Uh, they're going to be working on the next few weeks. Hi. I'm getting dressed here for you all here. Okay. My name's Andrea Boone. Heidi Miller and I are, uh, we help with, with the help of our husbands and a few of our friends. Um, we run the Junior Church Program, which is for children in kindergarten through third grade. It actually runs during the 820 service. And um, our goal with our kids is they start in the service, they're then dismissed and they come back to us and we try to take... Um, the gospel and make it relevant to the children in tangible ways. And so um, our theme this year are superheroes. And so we're actually studying unknown superheroes of the Bible. And so we try to do different things in which to get our kids to understand how they can be superheroes for Jesus. We actually have two current projects that are going on. The first one is the children are bringing in uh, change and tithe, and we're going to be filling shoeboxes for Operation Christmas Child. And so the the children are going to be using their tithe for that. And then we also um, have our Bundle Up Buffalo program that we actually started doing in this church last year, and um, I'm going to actually let the children tell you a little bit more about that. Let me see if I can find a microphone here that'll work for them. Hello? Hello? Stay warm this winter. Last year we collected over 300 winter items, and then some of us went to help hand them out to people who needed them. 
I will help the little babies. I help the adults find the sizes, the size coats to fit. We will be setting bins in the foyer and the youth room, and we'll be collecting items through October 20th. On October 24th, we will be going to Buffalo to help hand out coats to families who need them. Remember, we can use coats. Boots, scarves, hazes, crop, hazes, hats. All right. So if you got all that, yep. If you got all that, what we're doing is we're collecting coats, mittens, blankets, hats. There's gonna be bins around the church, um, and we would love to have you do going through your winter wear, fill them, and things that you don't no longer need. Uh, we went up. Children actually went up, and our families are going to be going up this year. We help hand out the coats and the scarves and ends. The really cool thing, if you're wondering how well we're doing, is we have a black cityscape hanging up in the youth room. And for every item that's brought in, we're adding gold stars to it. And so it's going to be our lights that are going to come on in our city. And so we're going to keep account of how many items that are brought in. So pop up there and take a peek, and you can see how many items we're bringing in. But help us be superheroes. We're excited to do that for Jesus. Thank you. Thank you, kids. We are so excited to see the tangible ways that you are being God's hands and feet in the world. I'd like to invite the ushers forward to help us as we give back to God what a portion of all that he has blessed us with. Together, walking in the 
As we contemplate God in our lives, we uh, have a lot to be thankful for. And we know that God, uh, in his grace and mercy, calls us to bring to him the burdens and the concerns that are on our hearts. And so as we uh, pray together today, if you would like to come and use the altar rail as a place where you offer your prayers, prayers for yourself, prayers for others, certainly a lot of things in our world uh, for which to pray, please join me at the altar rail if you'd like to use this as a place where you offer your prayers. Father, as we gather today, we are grateful for your mercy, your blessing, for your grace in each of our lives. We recognize that we are undeserving of all that you have given to us, which makes our our need to express gratitude even that much more compelling. We thank you for the gifts that you give to us, of family and friends, of, of life. We thank you for for the gift of of uh, the ability to do work, to uh, create and to accomplish, and to be a presence in this world for good and love mercy we pray that you will continue to help us to be the kind of people who share who you are with others Father as we come today there are many burdens and concerns that are on our hearts we pray for all who are grieving today And we ask for your mercy upon each of them. We pray, Father, for all who are in pain and struggling with illness and health concerns. And we we bring each of them to you. We think especially today of Ted Hopkins and Evelyn Heil. We pray for Alice Brown and Florence Tuber, for Mike Raybuck and Jill Tyson, for Bruce Brenneman and Bev Rett, for Micah Christensen, Linda Roth, Dick Gould, Crystal Blake, Emily Cricklar, and for others who are on our minds today. Father, we continue to pray for our world and the the great difficulties and struggles of our world. We think of our brothers and sisters who live in places where they are persecuted for their faith, and we ask you would give them courage and strength. We pray, Father, for the uh, Urbana Student Convention that will take place in a couple of months this great gathering out of which so many have sensed your call on their lives to to go places all over the world. We ask, Father, for your continued grace and the preparations for this event. We pray, Father, for those who are wrestling with uh, natural disasters, some that 
have taken place a while ago and some that are happening even now. And we think of uh, hurricanes and typhoons. We, we pray for those who have been uh, affected by the landslide in Guatemala. And for so many needs in this world, we pray for your healing, comforting, restorative grace. Father, we are grieved again to, uh, to bear witness to another shooting in school this week. We pray for all who are grieving. We pray, Father, for our nation that somehow we have created an environment in which this seems to be far too commonplace. We ask, Father, that you will bring peace Lord, we pray that you will help your people to be a catalyst that creates an atmosphere which instead of people turning to violence, they turn to you and find healing and grace. Father, we pray. We pray for your mercy upon us. Father, thank you for hearing our prayers. We know that you are always more ready to hear even than we are to pray. We ask, Father, that you will continue to pour out the abundance of your blessing upon us. And we pray all of this through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. In whose name we offer this prayer, remembering the prayer that he taught his disciples to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. morning. Uh, Following the scripture reading this morning, children can be dismissed to children and junior church. The scripture reading this morning comes from Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 7. Now during those days when the disciples were increasing in number, the Hellenists complained against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution of food. And the twelve called together the whole community of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should neglect the word of God in order to wait on tables. Therefore, friends, select from among yourselves seven men of good standing, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we may appoint to this task, while we, for our part, will devote ourselves to prayer and to serving the word. What they said pleased the whole community. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith, and the Holy Spirit, together with Philip, Procurus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicolaus, a proselyte of Antioch. They had these men stand before the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. The word of God continued to spread. The number of the disciples increased greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Please stand as we sing together.
I uh, missed 
earlier when I was talking about the new babies, we have a second, we actually have two new babies born this week. Um, the, uh, the Millers, uh, Lawson Miller was born to J.L. and Heidi on Monday of this week. And uh, so we have this double blessing and uh, give thanks to God for that. I think we probably would all agree that success is better than failure. I don't know. if any. Maybe you have a different perspective of life, but I would tend to think that success is better than failure. When we start something, when we enter into something, I think our goal is typically to be successful as opposed to failing. The issue is, with we tend to think that when we fail, when something doesn't go the way we want it to, when it's less successful than we would like, that that's where all the problems are. And we see success as the answer to our problems. But the reality is, while we all want to be successful and we're all hoping that success is where we move toward, the reality is that success brings its own issues. And success brings its own problems. The bigger something gets, the, um, the less connected people tend to be who are a part of it. The, the more successful things become, the easier it is to get wrapped up in the success and forget some of the things that got us to the success. And one of the things that intrigues me as we read through the book of Acts, as, as we, we see what's happening in the early church, they have progressed a long ways from chapter 2 to chapter 6. In chapter 2, we, the Holy Spirit comes upon them. Peter preaches a sermon. 3,000 people come into the church in that one day. And as the days progress, more and more people come to faith until we get to the beginning of chapter 6. And it tells us that they have been very successful. There are lots of people who come into the church. And, and as wonderful as that success is, there is a problem. The success, the growing numbers of people have meant that there are some folks who have been neglected, left behind. And as, we, as chapter 6 unfolds, we find that, that some of the believers come and say, look, we've got a problem. There are widows who are a part of the church who are being neglected. I don't know exactly what the system is, but somehow they, the early church has set up some type of food distribution system for widows. They are, they are feeding them. They're taking care of them. And what we find is that there are two different groups of widows. There are widows who are, in the, in the different translations use different terms, but uh, Hellenistic or Grecian widows and those who are Hebraic widows. And the difference is basically, it seems like, some of it is language. One that they speak Greek, others speak Aramaic. Some of it is geographical. They are from the, uh, the diaspora. They live in other, they're from other places of the nation, of the world, as opposed to being from Judea or Jerusalem area. But a lot of it is, because of those things, a lot of it is that they just, they think differently. They practice their faith differently. They engage life differently. And there seems to be some type of discrimination against those who are from who are who have a more Hellenistic, more Greek kind of mindset than those who have a more Hebrew 
Jerusalem-centered mindset. Think of it this way. It would be if you were in 1865, you might think of it as the difference between you put it, bringing together widows from Atlanta, Georgia, and widows from Philadelphia just after we have ended the Civil War. And they would think differently. They, they talk differently. They process things differently. They, they look at the war differently. They look at the country differently. And in some sense, you have this idea of people group, people groups in the church who are coming at faith, coming at life from different perspectives. And the people, whoever they are, who are distributing the food, intentionally or unintentionally, are neglecting, leaving out the widows who are from the more Hellenistic, Greek-thinking perspective. And the, the people, that some of the believers come and say, they're, they're being discriminated against, they're being neglected. What are we going to do about it? Now, when you read this story, well, one of the things that comes to my mind, I guess, as I read a story like this in the book of Acts, is why is this here? I find that to be a, a good question to ask when you read the scriptures. If you're like me, especially if you grew up in the church, you sort of take the stories of the Bible for granted. You know, the, the story, we read the stories, we've read them throughout our lives. We, we just come to see them as a part of the scripture, a part of the life of, of God's people. And often, I'm not sure, at least I didn't for a long time, ask myself, why, why this story? Because you think, really, when you look at the scripture, there's not that much there. And all the stories that we could be told about the early church, why does Luke choose to tell us this story? Now, there some, theor- some people theorize that we have this story because it's trying to help us understand how uh, the, the disciples operated. That, that the disciples said, look, we're not going to allow this problem to distract us from the real purpose of the church, and that is to go out and preach and teach. And in fact, as I was reading through some various perspectives on the story, that was actually the term that was used. And, and their idea was that this was one of the things that was trying that, that the, the enemy was trying to distract the disciples from the real purpose of the church by this problem coming to them and them realizing, look, we can't be distracted by this problem. We've got to go out and preach the gospel. But when I read this story, it seems to me like while it's true that the disciples need to go preach the gospel, it seems to me that perhaps Luke tells us this story to remind us, to give us a clear picture that in the early church, taking care of people who are vulnerable in society is important. Preaching the gospel, going out and telling people about Jesus is important. But so is taking care of people who are vulnerable and neglected in our society and in the church. And it's not either or, it's both and. It seems to me that what we have here is is a picture, an image for us, that in the church, we care about people who, to the rest of society, may be insignificant, may be pushed to the fringes, 
We care about people. We care about people who are rich and poor. We care about people who we feel like have it all together and people who don't. We care about people who, who have, we feel like have tons to contribute and people we feel like maybe don't have so much to contribute. It doesn't make any difference. Every person is important. And when we ask the question, what does the church feel? The real answer is we feel compassion for people. We feel compassion for all people who are in need. And particularly people who our society and our culture pushes to the edges. The calling of the church is to be compassionate, to feel compassion for people that tend to get neglected. I think that this is a key part of what what Luke is trying to help us understand. That the church cares about everyone. Isn't this what we see in Jesus? And when Jesus is out, Matthew 9 tells us that Jesus looked on the crowd and he was moved with compassion. We find throughout Jesus' ministry, him continually spending time with people that the religious folks say you shouldn't spend time with them. Roman soldiers, the people that they classify as outcasts, sinners, people that they push to the margins of society. Where is Jesus? Right in the middle of them. Nobody is a distraction to Jesus. No need is a distraction to Jesus. Nobody's burden is a distraction to Jesus. Every burden, every need, every concern that comes to Jesus doesn't cause him to feel like it's a distraction. Rather, it just brings up in him that much more the compassion that he feels for people who have needs. That's what it means to be the church. We feel compassion for people in need. We care about them. Because that's who Jesus is. I think one of the issues that we we wrestle with that we see in this story, though, is that we often often feel compassion. We're often compelled to, to, to help people in need if they're like us. Or if it's relatively easy to be compassionate toward them. I don't think it's a coincidence that in this, in this story we have, that there is this sense of, of neglecting these widows who are not like us. They don't think like us. They don't see of the faith like us. They, they, don't, they don't have the same kind of mindset about things like us. And it's so easy in our human nature to do that. And often we don't even realize we're doing it. But you stop and think about the the tragedies of life. And and how we respond to those, what we feel about those. You know, when we think about the places of the world where there are terrorist attacks. does Does it burden us and do we feel the same level of compassion when the people who are, who are attacked are Muslims, 
or Hindus or Buddhists as we do if they're Christians? I mean, shouldn't our hearts be broken? Shouldn't we feel compassion because people have been attacked and, and murdered? It's not that we feel less compassion for Christians. We just feel more for everyone. We think about people even right around us. It's more practical of life. You know, it, it's relatively easy to, to help people, to feel compassion for people who are easy to help. But what about people who we don't have anything in common with? You know, we think about going to some place where, where people are helped and, and, and it's, it's hard for us. We, you know, what do we talk about? How do we engage them? And yet... This is part of what we're called to be as a church. I do think a big part of our calling as a church is, is, to be, is to be advocates for people who don't have a voice in our society, in our culture. <clears throat> I've never really been one who, who felt like the church ought to be involved in politics. You know, and I'm, I, it, it makes me nervous when the church starts getting involved politically. And I think there is a place for that, but it seems like we always tend to, to start wanting to grasp power instead of sharing Christ. But one of the things that has struck me over the past few years is that if the church is going to be involved in the political arena, I think one of the primary reasons for that is to be advocates for people who don't have a voice in our culture, in our society. And, and sometimes it's hard for us to understand how vulnerable people in our culture and our society feel in this world. You know, if, if you don't know a lot about technology, if you don't feel comfortable with technology, the world feels like an overwhelming place. Because so much of what happens in our world is related to technology. You get into a place where you don't really understand how things operate. It's, it's a very vulnerable place to be. We went through some experiences this summer in our family of, you know, of, of being in, in uh, dealing with uh, you know, the, the issues of, of, of health issues and, and struggling with how you navigate some of those waters. And, and despite having a fair amount of experience, I mean, I, you know, working in some areas of the health industry and, and in ministry, you know, you're involved in, in helping people through health things all the time. I have to admit, there were a number of times where we felt really vulnerable. We didn't understand what was happening. We didn't know what the next step should be. We weren't sure how to handle this situation. And, and it was overwhelming. And, and it made me stop and think about so many people who haven't had the kind of experiences even that I've had and how overwhelming it must feel to try to deal with those things. And you add into the mix not feeling well or struggling with things and, and all of this, there's so much of our world and our culture that I think we take for granted because we get it, it works for us, we understand it, but so many people don't. There's so many people in our culture, in our society, who are wrestling with, what do I do? How do I even handle this? It's just over, it's overwhelming. And I think we as 
people of God have the opportunity to step in and say, let us be advocates for you. I think that says something about how we, how we petition our government to help people. You know, what, what's our primary objective for trying to, to, to be involved in, in, in petitioning government? Is it for our own well-being or is it for the well-being of others? Is, is, our, is our action self-centered or is our action about other-centered? And it's complicated, and it, it's, you know, there's a lot of stuff that, that goes on in the, in the political realm, and I don't, certainly don't understand all of it. But I think it's important for us at times to step back and say, what's my motivation? Where, where, where's my energy primarily being spent? What we're really talking about is not, it's not just, well, this is things, these are things that we ought to do really talking about is is living out the character the nature uh, the image of God one of the things that I was worried about with with the sermon is that that it would simply you'd walk out thinking oh I feel guilty now about what I'm not doing that's not what I want to do what I want us to see is that Living this way, caring about people, having a heart of compassion to the needs of people, the, the physical needs, the spiritual needs, the emotional needs, every part of people's lives, is that we, we feel that and, and we embrace that because that's who God is. And we're simply bearing the image of our creator. You think, look at, listen to how God has always cared about people in need. And think about some of these passages from the Old Testament. Exodus 22 God says, you must not exploit a widow or an orphan. If you exploit them in any way, my anger will blaze against you. Leviticus, don't take advantage of foreigners who live among you in your land. I'm the Lord your God. Malachi, I will speak against those who cheat employees of their wages, who oppress widows and orphans, who deprive foreigners living among you of justice. For these people do not fear me. Isaiah 58, this is the kind of fasting I want. Free those who are wrongly imprisoned. Lighten the burden of those who work for you. Let the oppressed go free. Remove the chains that bind people. Share your food with the hungry. Give shelter to the homeless. Give clothes to those who need them. Don't hide from relatives who need your help. I found that was an interesting one. (laughs) Have they left yet? Those new translations, they just get right at you, don't they? I'm sure the King James said that completely different and we could get around it a whole lot easier. I keep coming back to Henry Nouwen's book, The Return of the Prodigal Son. It's just such a powerful treatise of that parable. And, and he spends the first couple of sections of that book talking about how we are so much like the two sons. And how God speaks into our lives as his children and what he wants to do in our lives. But the real point of that book is getting us to the place where we realize that, that he is renewing us and he is redeeming us. And he's, and he's bringing us out of our need so that we can eventually be like the father to other people. The goal is not 
Well, we are, we are sons and, and God has redeemed us and we sit back and we just bask in that. The goal is that we are so transformed that we actually become like the Father to other people. And what does the Father look like? Well, it's summed up, I think, in, in Exodus 34 where God says to Moses, I am a God of compassion and mercy and faithfulness. You can count on me. Now one says, perhaps the most radical thing Jesus ever said was, be compassionate as your heavenly Father is compassionate. Because being compassionate is all about sacrifice and giving of ourselves. You can't really be compassionate and be absorbed in self-interest. It's about giving away ourselves. It's about going outside of those places where we feel comfortable. It's a, it's, it, you can't just settle. It's pushing us beyond those boundaries. And it makes me wonder if that isn't one of the reasons why the elder son is so upset with his father. Because he senses his father prompting him to want to be like him. And quite frankly, the elder son doesn't like the kind of father he has. He wants a father who is judgmental and condemning, particularly of his younger brother. Not a father who is forgiving and gracious and compassionate and merciful. But that's the calling on our lives. We're really, really just calling us to be shaped into the image once more of the father and to be the church who cares about people. So often, one of the, one of the uh, criticisms of the church is that they just care about themselves. Everything the church does is self-centered, self-absorbed, and it's so easy to get caught up in that. It's so easy to get caught up in the machinery of the church that we forget at the heart of who we are, at the heart of the gospel, is the compassionate heart of our Heavenly Father. We see in Jesus. When people call this a distraction, I want to turn to, to what we see in how the disciples respond. The disciples don't say, look, we probably need to take care of this because they're just bugging us about it. Just pick anybody you want and let them go deal with it. No, they say, this is one of the most important things we can do as the church. So let's find people who are the most godly among us. We want people who are full of the Holy Spirit. People who have exemplary character. People who are fully committed to Christ. This is such an important thing for us to do. That we want the most godly people we can find doing it. Because we are, we're trying to help people understand this is what God is like. This is the kind of stuff that God does. This is how God feels about all of us. This heart of compassion and mercy and love and grace. And when that happens, people's lives get changed. You get to verse 7, and it tells us that so many people, more and more people came into faith, and particularly a lot of, a lot of the Jewish priests came into the faith, unexpected people. And, and it makes me think, 
Is that because what they heard from the disciples and what they saw from the church matched up? As the disciples are out preaching about the compassion and grace and mercy and love of the Father, of God through Christ, they're seeing the church live out that compassion and mercy and grace to people who are in need. To people who are easy and people who are not. To people who are just like them and people who are not just like them. And when the, people, when the, when the world sees the church teaching the truth of who God is and living the truth of who God is, they stand up and take notice. Because quite frankly, it's pretty unusual. It changes lives. It changes the world. Fred Craddock is, was one of my favorite preachers. For years, he taught at uh, Candler School of Theology at Emory University, a variety of seminaries throughout the country. He's the kind of preacher that I would walk in a driving rainstorm to hear him preach. And um, he tells about when he was in college, back in the 50s, and uh, the Rear Admiral Thornton Miller came to speak at their college campus. Admiral Miller at that time was uh, the highest ranking chaplain in the military. And he spoke in chapel and had a a chance, some of them, to speak to him afterwards. And then that evening in their dorm, he began to share stories of his life and his ministry. He talked about being on the beaches of Normandy on D-Day. And walking up and down the beach... Stopping these soldiers, taking their hands, praying with them, and moving on to the next one, taking their hands, praying with them. And amidst the, the agony and the horror of that day, he went up and down the beach ministering to these dying soldiers. And one of the students said, Sir, you mean to tell us that While everything was going on, bullets and shells, you were going up and down the beach ministering to these people. He said, why would you do that? He said, because I'm a minister of the gospel of Jesus. And the guy said, well, you mean you you didn't stop to ask anyone? Were were they Catholic or Protestant or Jewish? He said, Admiral Miller stood up tall and straight and he looked at these guys and he said, now get this. If you're a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ, you only ask one question. Can I help you? Can I help you? And I want to say to us today that if we're children of our Heavenly Father, children of Jesus Christ, It's really only one question that we ask each other and other people is, can I help you? Whatever the need may be, whoever the person may be, whatever the circumstance may be, can I help you? Because that's what it means at the heart of compassion of our gracious, compassionate Father 
who has been so loving and good to us. That we want to share that with others who are also in need. Gracious Father, we thank you for this image we see in the, in the church. Forgive us for the times when when our self-interest becomes more important to us than compassion for people in need. Open our eyes, our hearts. We ask this through Christ. Amen. This is one of those um, ideas that you can't just think about. It's not enough just to say, well, I feel compassion. James says to us, it's great that you have faith, but if you don't act on it, if you don't do something about it, is what's, what's it really worth? So I want to challenge us to think about how we are compassionate toward people. We can't help everyone. We can't solve every problem. We can't meet every need. But there are certainly needs that God brings into our lives. Certainly people, circumstances. And he prompts us. The prayer is that my prayer is that we will, as a church, as individuals, will have a desire and openness that every day we're praying, Father, reveal to me the people that I need to be involved in their lives today. To show them you, to be compassionate. If we would, I think if we would all spend a minute or two every day at the beginning of the day asking God to give us his heart of compassion, his eyes to see, his ears to hear, and have the courage to act on that, I think it would change not just us, but the world. Because it's not really just how does the church feel, but it's what does the church do about what we feel. I'm praying that God will give us grace to act on those feelings. Let's stand as we sing the last.
Jesus Christ, the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you now and forevermore. Amen.